the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. While still in Coffs Harbour, we talk today to Flight Lieutenant retired Peter Nusky. In 1961, he joined work as a trainee metallurgist at BHP in Newcastle. Peter could see mirages taking off at Williamtown in 1967. He joined the RAF as a trainee pilot and graduated to fly Canberra bombers. Peter was posted to two squadron at uh, Phan Rang, Vietnam in 1969. He flew 233 bombing missions. In 1970, he returned to Williamtown for fighter training and got married. He was posted to 76 Squadron on Mirages. He completed an advanced navigation course and then joined 77 Squadron. After this, he completed the much sought after fighter combat instructor course and then instructed new fighter pilots at Operational Conversion Unit at Williamtown. In 1976, he flew an F-15 Eagle at Williamtown. Yes, an F-15 at Williamtown. In 1977, he resigned and bought a banana plantation in Coffs Harbour. He also built his own house using recycled materials. Peter then took a job managing a galvanising plant in Coffs Harbour and commenced a degree in mathematics and computing. Subsequently, he joined the Commonwealth Public Service in Coffs Harbour, finished his degree and secured a job in Canberra as an IT programmer. In 2002, he took retirement, built a home in Coffs, restarted a previous job as a contractor, commuting Coffs to Canberra for 12 months before in 2005 taking permanent retirement at Coffs. Peter, you saw mirages taking off when you were working at uh, Williamtown. Is that, that correct? I was working at the steelworks in, in Newcastle which was on the river, and in the distance you could see the mirages taking off. And hear them? Just, yeah. They were a, long way, a fair way away, but, yeah, of course, you can always hear them, can't you? Was that then instantly, I'm going to join the Air Force, or did you just watch a few days and a few weeks? Look, then... I'd, I'd been tossing it around for a number of years, actually. There was a little bit of family opposition from my uh, parents initially, like, when I first started suggesting it. But, um, I mean, I was at the stage where I wanted to do something else with my life apart from working at the steelworks. And, um, and I, came, I was living uh, in a, uh, a accommodation where there were a lot of other students. And one day a guy came home and said, I just joined the Air Force as a pilot. And I said, you so-and-so, how did you do that? And uh, he said, oh, I just, you know, went through the motions and I, then I knew that's what I wanted to try, at least give it a go. So, so he actually joined the Air Force with the intention of being a pilot? Oh yes, it was. Some people have told me that these days if you joined the Air Force then your path is determined by them, not necessarily you. Well it was different then. Uh, you applied to join as, uh, as a pilot 
and you had to go through all the tests and so forth. And uh, if you passed all those, you were in. But it was pretty selective. There were thousands of applicants and, you know, only a few selected each year. So it was very competitive. So, Peter, just tell us some of the processes of things you had to go through. I mean, what kinds of tests or assessments? Well, initially it was a lot of stuff like looking at... uh, uh, photographs of instrument panels and, and saying what the instruments read. Probably the most difficult test was what they called a reversal of reflexes, I believe. And what you did was you were sat in a chair with a screen in front of you and a great big bullseye on it. And there was this um, spotlight shining on the screen, which was controlled by a joystick in front of you. The sense of where the how the joystick controlled the light was exactly opposite to what you would think. So if you held it, turned it to the right, it actually moved to the left? That's correct. And the idea was to get as much time as possible in the centre of the bullseye. You obviously succeeded. Well, so. I must Yeah, I must have. <laughs> yeah. So it was 1967, that's, that's when you joined? Yes. What was the process then of actually getting into a situation where you, you were doing the course? What were the steps? From that moment on, I had to go to Sydney and take the oath of allegiance and so forth. And then we drove down to Point Cook. There you go. The next day, you got issued with all the uniforms and so forth. And okay. And how long is the, was the course then? Well, the course in total was 15 months. But you spent um, about nine months at Point Cook uh, on the, the Windjill trainer. The first three months were full-time ground school and then from then on it was half a day ground school half a day flying because you joined with the intention of being a pilot virtually you're thrown almost straight away into being in a plane yeah well like i say the first three months were ground school so not not initially but then once that uh, period of flying came on then you're into it full full bore yeah so what was the wind you like uh it was actually quite a difficult airplane to fly well uh, probably one of the best trainers in that regard. So uh, you know, a lot of pilots had, or trainee pilots had difficulty flying it well, and there were a lot of people scrubbed off the course in the early days. Peter, tell us what was made the plane difficult. What what aspects of the plane? Okay, it's sort of a a, a plane with a, a fairly gutsy motor that uh, twists the the airstream down over the tail. So flying at straight and level and well trimmed was a constant exercise. Like every time you changed uh, power or speed, you had to retrim everything and get it trimmed out. And then as soon as anything changed, had to do it all again. It just became second nature after a while. In that respect, it was quite demanding to fly. So therefore, with the RAAF's tests that they put you through, that reverse, everything being in reverse, that was obviously a, a good introduction it was it was yes uh, and another aspect that that uh, came up was that uh, 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 some people had the the go-kart with the reddles men- pedals mentality in other words with the go-kart you'd uh, push the right pedal and the way it was hooked up to the front wheels it'd go left yes whereas in an in a aircraft with a rudder you push the right pedal you got right rudder and it tend to screw it to the right so that was another little reversal some people had to get used to 
every time I talk to someone like you from uh, days gone by, I, I get the impression, very strong impression, that the training with the RAAF is rigorous and very thorough. Oh, it is. It is indeed. No doubt about that. Um, all right. You graduated in 1968, was it? Uh, Correct. Somewhere yes. 1968. Yep. Uh, was that the first time you got into a, a vampire or did the vampire come with the... No, no. Well, once we finished at Point Cook after nine months, we went over to Pierce for the second phase and that was all vampires. And what were they like? They were great. They, they were a bit antiquated and so forth, but they were really nice to fly. Uh, they flew in a straight line because, you know, a centre jet propulsion. They, they were a bit bit uh, clunky in one respect that they're being a centrifugal flow as opposed to actual flow they had certain rev ranges that were a bit vibrate you had to avoid but they were lovely to fly in formation and really a nice airplane to fly I, I enjoyed it you graduate in 68 you're flying vampires but then it's 1969 and you are now in Vietnam were you posted there or volunteer no I was posted there yeah, I was posted there. Um, when we graduated, of course, there was a sort of an attempt to give you uh, the choice, depending on where you finished on the course, gave you sort of the the rights to uh, the better postings, if you like. You had to, you, and there were only two uh, jet postings at that time, which were Canberra's. Where was the other one? Uh, well, what I mean is uh, two people selected oh, for Canberra's. Yes. Right. Okay. The rest, because of the Vietnam War, a lot of demand for chopper pilots, uh, Herc, Caribou, all that sort of thing, but only two Canberra postings. And I was lucky, lucky enough to get one of those. How did you get involved with the Canberra in the first instance? Well, because it was just a posting. And, and automatically, I mean, two squadron was flying Canberra's in Vietnam. So uh, once we did the conversion at Ambly and the post-conversion sort of training and then eventually got sent to Vietnam. Yeah, well, we'll talk about your career in Vietnam in just a second, but I want to know a little bit about the Canberra. Tell us about the... the it's a bomber, correct? It's a bomber, a crew of two, a pilot and a navigator bombardier. Really, for its age, it was a fantastic aeroplane. Crews at 48,000 feet, you could go low level, you know, it was sort of simple enough to be reliable and uh, very effective. And not only that, uh, it was no uh, electronic countermeasures or anything like that, and you couldn't see out the back. So there's no way in the wide world you could fly in North Vietnam. Because you'd be taken out. You'd be taken out immediately, yeah. There was actually quite a, quite a bit of work had to go into the Canberra because it was designed as a high-level bomber, but uh, they were able to um, modify the equipment in it so that it became a very effective and accurate low-level bomber. The modifications that went into it to make it that, was that specifically with the sighting for the bombardier, or is it that...? It was, it was all to do with the... Uh, what, what it actually revolved around was a uh, particular type of ground-tracking radar called a Doppler radar, which fed out ground speed and drift. OK, so that information could be then manually fed into the bomb site, so, and that gave you you know, the best possible chance of having good accuracy. With the planes flying in that direction, the target is below you. What's the process of getting plane and bomb in, in sync so it, it actually hits the right spot? Well, the optics of the bomb site give you a crosshair point, uh, like at an angle but ahead. 
So the bombardier lies in the nose of the Canberra and, and the, uh, the, the bomb site gives him a crosshair of where the bomb's going to land. And that, that's governed by you know, the height you're at, the speed you're at, um, the ballistics of the bomb and all that. Once you get on your bombing run, the navigator then gives you left and right commands to the pilot, just verbally. When, when, when the um, crosshairs are on the, the, the target, Bombs away. Mind you, you don't want to be close to a bomb dropping on the ground if you're on the ground because the, the um, fragmentation envelope is around about 800 metres. So Got bits it. and pieces of the bomb can go that far. I want to know, we're in the plane, we're in the, the, the Canberra, um, you're the pilot, the bombardier is lining things up. Who then at that point has control of the... I know you're flying it, but who has control of speed, direction, left, right, who's in charge then? Well, the pilot is doing that completely manually. Um, in fact, it, it's sort of, um, everything depends on having exactly the right speed and the right height when you release the bomb. As soon as you open the bomb doors, when you're approaching the target, everything turns a bit, bit haywire because the turbulence from the bomb doors being open causes the aeroplane to sort of wallow around and shake and rattle and. So yep. then you've got to change your power settings and be a stickler for getting the speed right and also listen to the, the bombardier's commands of left and right. Clearly, you have to be an exceptional pilot to be able to do all of that and also take direction left, right from the bombardier. Well, it's a high workload. You had over 200, what, 233 uh, sorties, bombings? That's uh, right, yeah. That's an incredible number. Uh, how is that planned? What's from step one to where you go and what you do and what you drop? What's the process involved? Well, we actually worked totally for the Americans. We had the Australian Air Force or, or government or had no say in the actual day-to-day -day operations. We worked for the United States Air Force, their command and control. So every night they would get requests for bomb strikes all over South Vietnam. And they'd go through all those and then they'd allocate targets to each squadron. Like we had several squadrons of F-100s at Phan Rang and they were doing bombing all the time. And then we'd get allocated uh, a certain number of targets. Well, eight targets a day because we had eight aircraft and then one at night. So that information came through the night before and then locally in the squadron that pilots would be allocated to one of those targets and it would be a, an electronic rendezvous and a frequency of the forward air controller with a call sign of that controller so you'd get up uh, you know suit up check your aircraft take off to be at that rendezvous at that time allocated you had no idea what the target was really until you got there and then the forward air controller would give you a briefing on what the target was. Once again, we hear that term forward air controller. The, mm. the job they did was just remarkable. Mm. Uh, and I've also been told by a former forward air controller that the, uh, the enemy listened to the command communications going on. So they would have known, would they not, that there's a Canberra in the air, it's coming our way. No, yes? Oh yeah, it could have been. Um, I mean, we wouldn't have known that at the time. 
you know, all that, all that is very possible. So in those 233 bombings that you undertook as the pilot, were there any moments when it came close to the enemy getting close to you or attacking you? Well, um, our normal bombing height was 3,000 feet. That's just out of rifle range. Yeah, it is, and, uh, and also um, out of the, your own bomb fragmentation height. Yeah, so you don't want to be caught up in your own bomb. That's right. Your bombing run is at 3,000 feet. Surely the enemy had weaponry that could reach 3,000 feet, did they not? Oh, look, it was fairly common after you got back for the aircraft uh, to have uh, bullets and so forth in it. But you wouldn't really know when you were flying it. They weren't heavy enough to, to really feel any impact or anything like that. But in terms of the effectiveness of the relationship between the United States Air Force, well, the United States and sec number two squadron, number two squadron in uh, Phan Rang, what was that relationship like? Well, it was a very, uh, very structured, very controlled. It was like a whole series of air traffic control and, and you know, um, military stuff all tied in together. So, it, yeah, it was, it was really heavily structured. Every bomb that dropped was really under, under pretty tight control. Was all of the ordnance on board the Canberra supplied by the United States or did we supply our own? In, in the very early days of the squadron being there, they used up all the supplies of leftover World War II bombs. Uh, many of those were 1,000 pounders and they made quite a decent bang. But when they, when they ran out of those, then we used but Australian government paid for American bombs. That's interesting. We paid them, but they supplied the ordnance. That's right. That's right. I mean, they supplied all the fuel and, and ordnance and so forth, and, but it was paid for by the Australian government. Well, apart from the 233 flights, bombing flights that you're undertaking, just relay for someone who's listening to you right now what it was like in Vietnam while you were there as a member of the Royal Australian Air Force. Well, uh, a squadron uh, would be approximately just over 200 personnel. Uh, we had our own living quarters um, in, in one particular area on the base. So once you got back to the base, you were, you were in your own Australian uh, compound. It, it was a huge base. I think it was about 26 or so kilometres around. More or less, it was fenced all the way around and there were towers spaced at every about every 50 or so metres or might have been a bit more than that which were manned at night. The Australian Defence Guard used to patrol outside the wire at night. Uh, it was regularly attacked by mortar rounds uh, two three times a week probably during the night you'd get mortar um, rocket propelled type mortar bombs uh, hitting the base. Not not precisely targeted but they did quite a bit of damage at times the, the, we had all our meals and that there um, in our own compound what was it like well for for a young bloke just starting off in in the um, in the squadron there your duty was to fly one mission a day and occasionally one at night the mission would take about probably about two and a half hours all up flying time and a bit of briefing and debriefing and so forth but the rest of the time you were sort of pretty well locked on the base because you weren't allowed to go outside without an armed guard so you were more or less pr 
pretty much locked into your own own area. So there was a lot of time to fill in in between sorties, you know. Like 24-7, 24-7, you are very conscious you are in a war zone. Oh, yes. Non-stop. Yep. yep. And, and uh, you said night missions, day missions. How did the night missions go? What? How were they different apart from it being at night than a, to a day mission? Yeah, apart from one type of mission, they were generally totally different. It wasn't visual bombing. It was bombing at a medium level, just above around about 20, 22,000 feet. In, uh, it was all radar controlled. So you flew the allocated height, the radar controller gave you heading corrections, very, very precise heading corrections to fly. He told you when to release your bombs. Generally, you let all six go in one hit. And I might add that in the Canberra, you could actually drop one bomb, two bombs at a time, or all the lot. All the lot. You could you could uh, change the spacing between the bombs. You could spread them out more, or or concentrate them. Um, so anyway, he the controller did all that. He he uh, told you to release. You'd feel the aircraft rock a bit as they went off, and he'd say, "Thank you very much. Good night." The American bomber during Vietnam was that—that that was the B-52, wasn't it? There were a lot of B-52 strikes, yes, but they had all sorts of aircraft dropping bombs there. You know, uh, F-100 Super Sabers, Phantoms, uh, a whole range. The B-52s came from Guam. Yeah, I'm just wondering what the Americans thought of the Canberra. Initially, they thought they'd be pretty useless, I think. But after a while, they let the Australians do, instead of doing, when, when I was telling about the night missions, that's all they did initially, were eight sorties of, of uh, those missions. But the Americans eventually let them do some uh, day missions, visual bombing, and Canberra proved quite effective. It was also very handy because, um, depending on the time of the year, the weather, the cloud would uh, could be quite low, too low for the uh, American fighters to do dive bombing because they couldn't do level bombing. They had to do dive bombing. So if they couldn't dive bomb, they, they were useless. So, But we could generally get under the cloud if it wasn't too low, uh, down to 1,000 feet. We were allowed to bomb, bomb to 1,000 feet. And then as soon as the bomb was gone, we had to pull up to try to avoid the... Um, the blast, the, the after blast. blast. Yes, yep. yes. So, and then uh, eventually we got, we got a much higher bomb damage <clears throat> assessment overall than the rest of the Americans. I would assume that the Americans would suddenly realise, guy, these guys are good, they know what they're doing. That is correct. In fact, they were amazed that we could fly eight sorties a day or nine, and we only had eight aircraft. They, they could not possibly have run that sortie rate in their system. They would have needed, you know, probably 20 plus aeroplanes to do that. The Canberra was sort of so, generally so reliable, and our, our ground crew worked 24 hour shifts. You just told me what I wanted to ask. Obviously the ground crew, we mustn't forget the ground oh, crew. They did an amazing job, yep. And they're all Australians? Oh yes. Oh yeah, all Australia, regular Australian Air Force. Yep. The Canberra was totally controlled, not directed, but controlled on the ground and in the air by Australians. When you say controlled in the air, it gets back to what I said. The air crew flew the aeroplane, but we were operating under American command and control as far as the sorties go. What was the last 
memories of Vietnam. What was the last days of Vietnam like for you? Okay, well, when you arrive in Vietnam, the first question anyone in the squadron asks you is, how many days have you got to go? And you'd say, 365. And they'd just shake their head at you and say, nobody's got that long to go. So everybody starts counting down. 300 days to go, 200. When you get to 100 days to go, you are officially short. That's the term. You are now short. Short time to go. So then, you know, you get right down to a few days to go and then your last sortie. Um, the tradition is that when you taxi in after your last sortie, um, the ground crew has a bottle of champagne in their hand, hands instead of flags and then the rest, the squadron who's on the ground, they all come down and, you know, you get hosed down with a fire hose and have a glass of champagne and, you know, wait for another day or two to pack your bags and um, head off. And what did you fly back home? Okay, well, we flew back on Qantas. You flew back domestic? Well, yeah, yeah, they were chartered, chartered yeah, aircraft. Right, and okay. the, the pilots used to get, I believe, $1,500 danger money to land at Saigon. And I can tell you, Saigon at the time was the busiest airport in the world. And I landed there many times, uh, as did other uh, aircrew, because it was standard practice to, to land at Saigon after your sortie and pick up a diplomatic bag and any stuff like that to take it straight back to the base. Well, it was a nightmare getting in and out of Saigon, I tell you. It was <laughs> an experience. Peter, you come back, and then I think 1970 was it. You were back in Australia. Yes, and I might add, when the when the uh, 707 left the runway, wow, what a cheer! <laughs> 200 blokes, I think, just cheered their heads off. <laughs> You've been flying Canberras. Now you're going to get back into jets. Did you have to relearn? This is this is not a Canberra. This is. This is not a bomber. This is actually oh, me. Oh yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, going into the fighter world's a completely different setup. So there's a lot of lead-in stuff. So you spend some time on Mackies. So I had to do a Mackie conversion, and then you do quite a bit of work with Mackies on form formation flying in in um, sections of four, uh, operating on the bombing range, uh, uh, tactics, all, all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, at my time, the Sabre was still uh, uh, an intermediate uh, trainer. So then we converted to Sabres and and did the same thing all over again with Sabres. And then the Mirage. And then the Mirage. So it's sort of a, you know, each one's a step up. Did you have to remind yourself the very first time you took off in the Sabre, or, the, or even the Mackie, I'm not in a Canberra. This is, this is a much smaller plane and it goes much faster and is more manoeuvrable. Yeah, all of that, all of that. Uh, the other thing is your first trip in a Sabre is your first solo. Oh, because you had uh, someone with you in the Mackie? Well, you could do, like it was a tandem seat of the Mackie. So, yeah, yeah when you did your first few trips in a the Mackie, there was an instructor in the back and then you went off solo. With the Sabre, there was a, a crude simulator, but uh, once, you, once you'd had your first flight come up, you were it on your own. It was a bit... Could be a bit tricky after takeoff if you did the wrong thing, but you know. You let go. me let me share with you a description, and you tell me when you've heard it what I'm talking about. 
Its unprecedented maneuverability and acceleration, range, weapons and avionics. It can penetrate enemy defense and outperform and outfight any current enemy aircraft. It has electronic systems and weaponry to detect, acquire, track and attack enemy aircraft while operating in friendly or enemy controlled airspace. The weapons and flight control systems are designed so one person can safely and effectively perform air-to-air combat. What plane am I talking about? <laughs> well, it sounds like the F-15 to me. <laughs> Tell me, I, I want to know the backstory. You actually got to fly one. Why was it in Australia? What was the purpose? How good is it? Just tell us about the F-15 Eagle. Okay, uh, the Americans were having their bicentennial celebrations. They are also trying to sell the F-15 sort of around the world and also particularly in in Asia. So they sent a couple of aircraft out and I think they probably went through Korea and Japan uh, uh, and so forth and then they came down to Williamtown and I guess they were trying to get you know the pilots all on side to provide a bit of a, uh, a pressure mm-hmm. to say how good this thing is anyway they came to Williamtown and um, they they gave us uh, 20 back, uh, rides that we could go on and I happened to get allocated the job of pulling the names out of a hat so yes. uh, no 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 uh, trickery or anything up the sleeve, but I pulled the commanding officer out first, which is a good you know good PR for me. Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and, and myself out second. <laughs> um, so okay. anyway, th- that was the deal. So um, so we we got um, uh, out to the runway, and the pilot said, "Look, normally I'd let you take off. This is from me in the back seat, mind you." He said, normally I'll let you take off, but I want to do a bit of an engine thing. So he said, I'll take off and then I'll hand over to you. So, okay, we go about, you know, a third of the distance down the runway that a Mirage would take, rotated vertical and accelerated going straight up. So I turned around, looked back over the tail because the visibility was just brilliant. And I could just see the runway just going straight <laughs> down below us. And uh, that was a start, anyway. He handed over to me, and we met up with a couple of Mirages and uh, did some tactics. And um, it, it was much easier to fly than a Mirage because you couldn't overstress it. Uh, you just, if you wanted to turn hard, you just pull back on the control column, and it would the, the stick the um, uh, the control column. If you understand what I'm talking about, yes, and um, it would it would allow you to go to maximum G and no further. So you couldn't overstress it. Um, so it enabled you to spend more time looking outside instead of you know, keeping a really close eye on, on your G and your speed. And um, yeah, so in that respect, it was, it, was, um, it was great to fly. It had terrific radar uh, uh, aids inside. Um, if, if, it, if the radar picked up a bogey in the distance, it would then the, the system would then project a little square of light on the canopy where that target should appear if you looked. So you, you then had to just look in that tiny space yep. 
in, in order to try and pick the target up visually. Whereas if you're doing this in a mirage, you know that you've got a huge, huge amount of sky out, out there to search. Anyway, um, yeah, that was all good. The, the interesting thing was uh, if you put it in full afterburner on two engines, it, you got a bit dizzy watching the fuel gauges because they went down pretty quick. I can imagine. It, did, yeah. it had a uh, Mac 2? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, it was a Mac 2 or might have even been 2.5. I can't remember exactly now. But, uh, I mean, you never go to that speed in combat anyway. No, and we, but we didn't buy it. Why do you think that would have been the case? Uh, we didn't buy it because it was too expensive. The price started going up and up. And uh, I think that was that was the main reason. Uh, um, so there you go. And we didn't have any tankers at the time. Uh, oh, so it was in in air flight, uh, filling up again. I mean, they right? could air to air refuel, but uh, yeah, of course, sure, with our, sure. our antiquated system, you couldn't do that. So you flew Mirages at that stage, which was our pinnacle. How do you compare it, the F-15, to our Mirages? How much better or how much worse was it? Which? Oh, it wasn't worse. It, it was, uh, because of the aids it had on board, it was significantly better. Um, had had a lot better visibility, um, easier to fly. Uh, in fact, after the sortie was over, I came back and landed it from the back seat. First time in the aircraft. So that just shows you, uh, you wouldn't do that in a Mirage, first time you're in the back seat. Um, so, yeah, um... I mean, it would have been a, a fantastic aeroplane. In fact, they're still flying it. In fact, I think they're still making versions of it. Yeah, well... It, but, but oh, you know, it's lasted a long... I'm, I'm talk, my trip was in about 1976. So you can see how long it's been around. In service, and it was in service before that as well. And the old adage, if it's not broken, don't fix it. That's right, right. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you actually resigned in 1977. So what? That's ten years with the Royal Australian Air Force. What was what was the reason for resignation? <laughs> I have a lot of trouble explaining this to people, but it seemed like a great idea at the time, and it was. Uh, I think the Air Force, I, I would say, uh, are rather guilty of not really looking after their personnel as well as they could. You, I had no idea. I mean, I, I had reached the stage of pretty much plateaued as far as flying goes. There's no new fighter in the offing. Uh, I was instructing on mirages, so, you know, can't, you can't sort of do much, much more than that. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. I've been doing that for a few years. And, in fact, I had no, no intention of resigning, but we came up to Coffs Harbour for a holiday and... Um, my wife said, I want to walk through a banana plantation. I thought, oh, right, eh? So we did. It was such a lovely atmosphere. And then... Uh, did you buy one? We did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> so was we that, that the motivation for resignation at that stage? That well, it, no, there were uh, there was family reasons as well. We wanted to sort of create for ourselves a stable environment. Kids were about to start school. Um... We just wanted to sort of give them a, quite a few years of, of a stable schooling system and so forth. And I suppose we must have been subconsciously ready for a change, I think. Sure. And well, people uh, do things because of that. That that makes perfect sense, Peter. Uh, look, 
I want to maybe dwell on each one, but banana plantation, galvanizing plant, degree in maths, uh, into Canberra with an IT programmer. The, the general question I want to ask with those that range of activities that you undertook after resignation, how do you think or how good was the RAAF in preparing you for those kinds of things without even knowing that you were being prepared for those kinds of things? Not, they weren't, uh, not specifically, I don't think. I mean, you're always training in the Air Force. You are doing stuff, you know, like I did heaps of courses and, and so forth. Sure. Um, so you're always mentally sort of uh, stimulated and, and have the demands put on you to, to learn and, and so forth. Um, really, there was, there was nothing terribly specific that... that uh, uh, affected me in my later careers, um, especially in banana growing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I did yeah. learn how to do truckies knots and so forth in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. No, but really what I meant was, it, just in general terms, because as you just said, you're always training within the Air Force. Therefore, when a person does leave the Air Force, anything they take on, that that backdrop of training, that backdrop of what the career has given them, really does give them an advantage, I would have thought. It, it's, I think it certainly did once I ended up in the public service as a, as a programmer, because um, I suppose I was, I was very used to working in a team and so forth, and, um, and um, being, um, uh, what's the right word, uh, I had a, a an individual sense of responsibility to my employer. I always tried to give more than I got, all, all yep. that sort of thing, you know, I suppose. Well, that's the Air Force. That's the Air Force. Yeah, it is, but it, that's right. But that sort of background mentally yep. applied in, in the public service when I got there as well and into, you know, more formal jobs. Hmm. Why, uh, at this stage, you take up a degree in mathematics? What was What was the reason for that? Well, when I when I worked at the um, galvanising plant, they uh, after a few years they went through very hard times locally, and uh, I got retrenched simply because they didn't have the volume of work. Yep. So I had to take a long, hard look at what I was going to do, and um, so um, one of the things I wanted to do was to make sure I I did something that I was really interested in mentally. Probably wasn't quite so physical, and. Um, I hunted around and thought about it for quite a while and, and I thought, well, I was always interested in mathematics and that sort, especially applied maths and um, at that time, 1985 is when I started that, that degree, yeah. computers were just starting to get a go on really. I mean, the internet wasn't, wasn't going in full force mm -hmm. here um, and once I got into the computing side of it, I thought, oh, I really really enjoyed that. That was pretty good. So when it came to the um, last year or two of my degree, I had a major in either maths or computing. So I elected to go computing and uh, that was the right thing to do. So in Canberra there, with that maths background, you end up in IT programming. Is that is that the way it went? That's the way it went. No regrets? Oh, no, no regrets about that. Um, um, I mean, harping back a little bit, when, when I left the Air Force after 10 years, they really were tough with your superannuation. You just got your 
um, contributions back with no interest whatsoever. So 10 years of super, almost down the drain because you'd lost all that growth. Sure. So I was rather interested in also making sure that I was trying to look after myself in later years, you know, by getting into some sort of scheme. So that was another factor that I thought, well, if I go in the public service um, for a while anyway, um, you know, uh, I can start building up some super again. Yeah, it makes sense. So it worked out in that respect, yes. You, in, well, I won't say retirement, but in your post-DAAF days, you became a volunteer with the Rural Fire Service? Yeah, that was uh, about 2009 I started that, yes. Um, I actually thought they wouldn't probably be interested in me, I'd be too old, but uh, because of my banana growing days, I had a truck licence. Uh. And, and one thing they're terribly short of is people with truck licences, because you need yeah. a you need a, a sort of a higher than normal licence to drive the uh, the big trucks in the fire service. Yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, yeah, I, I got uh, accepted. In fact, it's sort of hard to leave. <laughs> yeah. How how good how good do you think we are in Australia at volunteerism? Oh, I think we're excellent. The country runs on volunteers. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there are 70,000 volunteers in New South Wales in the Rural Fire Service. How could you do without, uh, you know, the number of those? And that's only one, one thing. There's SES and there's, there's all the other volunteer things that go on. So, yeah, I think, you know, Australia runs on it and, and people give a lot to it. And uh, as a small it's a good nation, thing. As a small nation, I think particularly with the RAAF, we really do punch way above our weight. Mm. Mm. Yep. Well, look, I, I've got one last question. Uh, I've asked a couple of other people. A, a young teenager comes up to you one day and says, I'm thinking about joining the Air Force. Should I? What do you answer? I, I would answer that um, yes, by all means, if you're if you're really keen on doing it, by all means, uh, it's uh, it's rather demanding, but it can be terribly rewarding and interesting. Um, I'd also tell him, and I've told young people this before: never forget you're in an armed service, and you could very well be called on to deliver, you know, le as they call it, lethal force. So you, you must be ready in your own head. Am I prepared to go to war? Just have that in the back of your head. Uh, yep. Sort it out before you join. Good answer. So that's Good my answer, answer to that. Hmm. Peter, again, thank you for your contribution. It's been a great joy to talk to you. Uh, you are, always remember, you are part of a very rich history, a hundred years of history of the second oldest Air Force in the entire world. So thank you for your service, sir. That's all right, a pleasure, and good to talk to you. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services 
of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.